All right, get your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I don't want to get off on all the nostalgia, but Luke chapter 1. And I'm uh, going to continue the series that we started a couple weeks ago but called Timeless Christmas. Timeless Christmas. And what we're doing is we're looking at just the events of the Christmas story in the Bible, and we're just pulling out relevant truth. They're timeless truths that we can find in there. And a few weeks ago, I started this series with Christmas possibilities. And I talked about Christmas makes some things possible that weren't previously possible. Last week, Pastor Mark continued the series with Christmas purpose and talks about how Christmas really is about centering us back and bringing us back in to the purpose and the plan that God has for us. And this week, I want to share something um, along those lines as well. And I don't know about you, but how many of you have Christmas, kind of your Christmas traditions? Don't we all kind of have our Christmas uh, traditions? And for me, now listen, don't judge me. Don't judge me because then you'll be judged according to Jesus, right? Don't judge me because hell is hot, okay? I don't want you to judge me, but for me, it's not really Christmas until there's a particular movie that I need to watch. And when I watch that particular movie, then it's like, now it's Christmas. So when I get out my Marty Moose mug and I, want, and I drink my eggnog and watch Christmas Vacation, listen, don't judge me. When I watch Christmas Vacation, you thought I was going to say like White Christmas or Miracle on 34th. No, no, no. Christmas Vacation. When Cousin Eddie shows up, we can have Christmas. Right? Are you with me? Don't judge me. I'm not going to judge you watching The Bachelor and preaching about fornication and adultery and all those types of things. I'm not going to judge that. And you don't judge Christmas vacation. Right? By the way, do you know every family has a cousin Eddie? And if right now you're thinking my family doesn't, guess what? Cousin Eddie. Now, Clark, don't you go get attached to that RV. I'm going to take it with me when I leave here next month. One of my favorite lines, Eddie, I, wouldn't be more, I couldn't be more surprised if I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet. I can quote the whole movie. It's an awesome movie, um, Clark Griswold. But it's just not, it's not Christmas till Aunt Bethany recites the Pledge of Allegiance at Christmas dinner, right? Till Uncle Lewis's stogie catches the Christmas tree on fire. It's not Christmas till the cat gets electrocuted under the chair, right? And it's not Christmas until Clark gets the Jelly of the Month Club membership, and Eddie says, Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year round. How I many you know it's not Christmas until I've heard some of my favorite lines? But the whole premise of that movie really is that Clark is going to have this fantastic Griswold Christmas, like the perfect Griswold Christmas. And they had to find the perfect Griswold Christmas tree that blows out the windows because it's really too big for their house and actually has a squirrel in it. You know what I'm saying? They got to find the perfect Griswold Christmas tree for the perfect Griswold Christmas, and they want to have the perfect Christmas, but what we find out throughout the movie is that the conditions weren't really right for the perfect Christmas. And I just thought about that, and I wonder how many people are getting ready for Christmas, and you would, have, you would love to have like the perfect Christmas this year, but you've been looking around, and if you're being honest, you're thinking, I really don't have the perfect conditions. And then I thought about the first Christmas, because the first Christmas was perfect, but there were no perfect conditions. And so I want to take a few minutes, I'm going to talk to you today about Christmas conditions, Christmas conditions. And so look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and this is where Gabriel comes to speak to Mary. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, 
a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel said to her, Greetings to you. You're highly favored, and the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. He will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Now, verse 37 is probably just for somebody. This is what you needed to hear today. We're going to read it out of God's Word. Verse 37 says, For no word from God will ever fail. Some of you, that's just what you needed to hear, isn't it? You can probably pack up and go home. You don't even need to hear my three points. God just spoke to you, and he reminded you. And this is what he said. He said, no word from God will ever fail. Can we just read that together? No word from God will ever fail. In verse 38, Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. Christmas conditions. I want to talk about the conditions that God shows up in. The conditions that Jesus shows up in. Um, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. I'm going to give you three. There could be more, but I'm going to give you three that, that are on my heart this morning. And the first one is this, that God shows up in ordinary conditions. God shows up. I, I don't know if you feel this way, if you've ever felt this way. Maybe you have. I know I have. And, and that is sometimes when I look in the mirror, what I see is somebody that's so ordinary that God would never show up and God would never use and God would never speak because he's just too ordinary. Sometimes we kind of discredit what God can do through our life based on what we see in the mirror because we don't see anything extraordinary in the mirror. We've lived it with us too long. Wherever you go, that's where you're at. You are with you no matter where you may wander. And everywhere you go, you're reminded sometimes that you're just a little bit ordinary. Maybe God, I remember I was talking to an elder a couple weeks ago and I said, I've learned to quit disqualifying the vision of God based on the condition that I see. I've learned to, to stop disqualifying God's vision based on my conditions. Because for me, I, I, I'm a visionary guy. I want to take over the world. A lot of you are here because we're here because we believe there's something more than just praying a prayer, going to church. Dying, having a good funeral, and going to heaven. We believe God God wants more for us than that. We, we've kind of given up on what religion promises us, that we can die and go to heaven. And we believe that there's a kingdom that has no end that can come to earth. And it comes to earth through the sons and daughters of God. And we are those sons and daughters. And so we look for greatness in this world instead of just trying to survive it until we die and go to heaven. There's some of us that believe that way. And so for me, I'm one of those that, that I think anything's possible with God because that's what he said. And, and I don't think the name of the game is just having a good church experience until I die and go to heaven. I think God created us for more. I think God's kingdom is a kingdom that is so big and it's so real and it never has an end. And God is trying to move his kingdom into this earth. And that is our objective. And so our objective isn't just to pray a prayer and have a good church service and someday die and go to heaven. Our, our objective is to change the world by allowing God's kingdom to move through us. And so I have these big dreams and these big visions. And, and many times I would catch myself, God, I felt like God would show me something. I would catch myself saying, well, God, you know, if you wanted to do that through me, then you should have put me in a larger city. 
You should have given me different connections. You, you should have given me a different family or a different pedigree because I don't have the connections. I don't have the family. Maybe I don't have the resources to do what you called me to do. And here I am, this very ordinary guy stuck in this very ordinary town. And now you're talking about these great things. But when you study the Bible and you read the Bible, you find out that God only works for ordinary people. In fact, when you look at, at Mary and Joseph and the Christmas story, you're going to find Mary and most theologians believe she was a teenager. And so Mary really was just an ordinary teenager. Not, not a lot that we can tell that was different. If, if you would have been living in Nazareth a couple thousand years ago and you knew Mary, you would just think, hey, that's just Mary. You wouldn't have been thinking there's something about Mary. You would have just been thinking that's Mary. Right? And then let's talk about Joseph. It's kind of the same thing. He's just Joseph. Hey, that's Joe from next door, right? Good old Joey that I've known all my life. And the truth is, Joseph, we, we say he's a, a carpenter. The Greek word is tecton. It actually means builder, meaning he would, have, he would have probably built things with wood and with stone. And if you know Joseph, maybe you, your deck was built by Joseph. Maybe he built your fireplace for you. Like Joseph was just an ordinary blue-collar guy. He went to work every day with a lunch pail, had a 30-minute lunch break to eat his ham and turkey sandwich. He was just a, a normal guy, ordinary. Mary's ordinary. Joseph's ordinary. They're doing kind of an ordinary thing. They're engaged to be married. That's kind of ordinary. Then we find out that they're going to journey to a town called Bethlehem, and this is the place that God has picked as the birthplace of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and do you know, can you tell me anything about Bethlehem besides the fact that Jesus was born there? I mean, there's, there's really nothing extraordinary about it. Even to this day, it's twenty five to 30,000 people. It's not, not really famous for a lot. It's a lot smaller than the city we live in. It's just kind of a just kind of an ordinary town. In fact, Micah prophesies the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem a little over seven hundred years before Jesus is born. That's pretty good. I haven't called anything seven hundred years from now yet. But Micah chapter five verse two it says, "But you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands, do you see that? Though you're ordinary, you're little little among the thousands of cities in Judah." Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. It's kind of interesting. 700 years before Jesus is going to be born, Micah prophesies that the most extraordinary man that's ever lived is going to be born in the most ordinary place that's ever existed. Here's what I want to say is, that today, if maybe you feel a little ordinary, maybe you feel like I can't do great things for God. Maybe you feel like God is not going to show up in my situation. I, I'm just too ordinary. There's nothing extraordinary about me. I'm just the guy from next door. If that's the way you feel, this is what you need to understand. God bursts the most extraordinary miracles in the most ordinary places. That God does the most extraordinary things in the most ordinary ordinary places. God uses the very ordinary to confound the whole world. He uses what he does, confounds the wisdom of the world, Paul says. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, we find out why God chose Israel. And do you know why God chose Israel? Not because they're Israel, not because they're great, not because they're mighty. In fact, according to Deuteronomy 7, God chose Israel for this reason. They're the smallest and the weakest. Like if you've ever thought of yourself as less than, if you've ever thought of yourself as too weak, if you've ever thought of yourself as not good enough, not grandiose enough, I don't know enough, I don't have enough, I'm not connected enough, I don't have the right family, I don't have the right job, I don't have the right position, I'm not in the right place, I'm not in the right city, I don't have the right wife, I don't have the right husband, I don't have the right kids. If you've ever looked at your life and devalued it as just ordinary and commonplace, this is what I need you to understand. When you look in the mirror, maybe you see something ordinary, but God sees something extraordinary. In fact, the reason that uh, Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem was because Joseph was of the lineage of David, and David was from Bethlehem. David the shepherd, David the king, you remember him? Here's what's interesting about that situation is when you really study the life of David, more than likely David was an illegitimate son of Jesse. In fact, in Psalm 52, David says, in sin I was conceived. Psalm 69, he says, I'm an alien to my brothers and God has known my shame and my reproach. It's interesting because David, David was not born in the best conditions, but yet God wanted a king and he tells Samuel, I'm going to pick a new king and I want you to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse and I'm going to pick one of his sons. Now, hold up. First of all, we have Israel. The, the least of the nations. Jesse was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the smallest of the tribes. Jesse's family was most of the, one of the most ordinary and inconsequential, probably not very, probably poor families of the tribe of Benjamin. And David is the least of the sons. He's the illegitimate son. That's why when Samuel says, Jesse, call your sons, they don't even invite David because he was considered a half-brother. And yet God comes to the weakest nation, to the smallest tribe, to the poorest family, to the most overlooked son, and God says, there's my king. When everyone else thought David was too ordinary to call into the house, God thought he was too extraordinary not to call to something great. Maybe that's the way God sees you today. Maybe there's a discrepancy between the way you see you and the way everybody else sees you. Maybe there's a discrepancy between the way you see you and the way God sees you. Because God, in his mind, has never created anything ordinary. God comes to ordinary places Here's the second thing. God comes to ordinary conditions, but I like this one even more. God comes to messy conditions. Have you ever looked at your life and thought, this is really messy? Have you ever looked at that? In Luke chapter 2, this is when Joseph and Mary are going to travel to Bethlehem. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So here we are. These are not, you know, I don't know if you ever thought, but probably if I would have been God and my son was going to be born, I don't know about you, but 
when, when my son was born, we wanted the conditions to be just perfect, right? Like we went to the hospital ahead of time. We made reservations. We wanted the suite, the nice room, the clean room with capable doctors and nurses, right? We wanted to make sure the staff was ready. The room was ready. We were ready. The clothes were ready. The family was ready, right? We sanitized the nursery 87 times. You hear what I'm saying? We wanted the, and I'm thinking if I would have been writing the Christmas story and knowing that, that Mary is going to give birth to the savior of the world, it might've read like this. And so it was because a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. And, and Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. And so God sent a motorcade with a limo and doctors and an ambulance to travel with them. And then they booked the nice presidential suite right next door to the hospital with a doctor right next door in the room right next door, right? And every morning Mary had room service and her feet massaged while they're waiting for the time for Jesus to be born and while they're paying their taxes or whatever. Wouldn't that make a lot of sense if it's the savior of the world? But yet God doesn't come to perfect conditions. Think about this. Um, Mary and Joseph, um, think about this. First of all, Mary's this ordinary lady. And then God says, or the angel says, you're going to have a child. And now Mary, who's engaged to Joseph, is pregnant, but Joseph's not the daddy. And Joseph, who was engaged to Mary, is engaged to Mary, and she's pregnant, and he's not the daddy. I know they didn't have Facebook, but I bet everybody in Nazareth knew their face. It was a scandal, right? And Joseph's like, I'm just going to, this has gotten messy. I'm just going to end it. I'm going to break off the engagement. And then the angel says, don't break off the engagement. So he decides not to break off the engagement. But now people are like, Joseph, you're crazy, man. You're engaged to this. I mean, she's pregnant. It's not yours. You're engaged. Like, obviously, break off the engagement. No, no. And then he's at work, you know, and he's building a fence or something, building a fireplace. And they're like, Joseph, you know, what's the deal? Why are you staying with her? He's like, it's okay, guys. It's cool. Like, everything's cool. Like, some angel spoke to me and said, don't worry about it because she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. The first guy's like, you're on crack. And the second guy's like, yeah, I think my cousin got pregnant by the Holy Spirit too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's scandalous. It's messy. Every time Mary goes to the store, people don't talk to her. They look the other way. They go to the other aisle in the grocery store. So it's messy. And now, now, just even though it's messy, like, what could be worse? Oh, we got to go to Bethlehem. But don't worry that's only 80 miles, except we're Jews and there's Samaria, Samaria's in the way and we're not going to talk to the Samaritans. So we have to go around. So now it's just a hundred mile journey, but don't worry, Mary, my new wife, who's in her third trimester. It's okay. I got a new burrow. He has four leg independent suspension and cruise control. And nice leathery seats. <laughs> because every pregnant woman in her third trimester wants to go on a hundred mile road trip on the back of a donkey. Right? I mean, ladies, I remember this with, with Julie, but in your third trimester, nothing you do is comfortable. 
Like you got an alien inside of you, and when you want to sleep, they want to dance. They're hungry. They're sitting on your bladder. You know what I mean? There's nothing you do is comfortable. So yeah, let's just make it a little bit more messy by traveling 100 miles on a donkey. And then there's Joseph, because every man wants to go with a pregnant woman on a 100-mile donkey ride. That's what every man's dreaming of, because that's going to be fun. That's going to work, because everything you do is going to be right on that trip. <laughs> so it's messy. But then even more than messy, now we get to Bethlehem, and Hotel.com dropped the reservation at the Holiday Inn. But don't worry if it wasn't messy enough, Mary, after your long donkey ride to get here. We have a luxurious stable for you. And by the way, their stable would have been dug into the side of a hill, so it'd be more like a cave. And do you know why they had a stable at the inn? To keep the animals of the people who made reservations. So like Mary, if you hadn't got used to that donkey enough, now you're going to spend the night with him, <laughs> along with everybody else's donkey. But first, let me stubble, shovel the s- stuff out of the way. <laughs> Because have you ever seen a clean barn that's got animals in it? (laughs) It's a little messy. And then, Mary, here's your firstborn son, and we don't have the presidential suite, and he's not going to be born, you know, at St. Luke's Hospital. He's going to be born in a cave where the walls are made out of dirt. And and the, the delivery bed is a stack of hay that the animals haven't quite eaten yet. And the trough, where the crib the cradle is going to be a trough where animals have eaten and regurgitated and spit and slobbered, but it'd be great. Like I remember when our kids were born, our first one, when the first, how many, you know, the first one, there's difference with the first one. And like by the third one, like the first one is born and someone wants to look at the baby. And it's like, before I move the blanket, I'm going to sanitize your eyes <laughs> so that you don't transmit any germs with just your eyes. And so like, you want to see the baby? Cause you have hand sanitizer on your belt. Like, and you're just rubbing it on their face like this. You know, by the third, third one's born, it's like he can eat dirt, whatever. It doesn't matter. He's fine, you know. But, but that first one, so here's the first one. He's going to be born in, in a cave with animals and smells. What does it say? It says that the God of the universe likes to come to the messiest places to birth the greatest miracles. That's what it says. That's what it is. If you're looking at your situation, you're like, God, I'm headed toward Christmas and my life is messy. Then this is what you need to understand. That's really good because God does the most amazing things in the most messy places. And can I tell you something that no one really ever tells people, but you should, because we tell people, oh, just turn to Jesus. Everything's going to be okay. Sugar plum fairies and unicorns and... The munchkins are going to lead you down the yellow brick road to heaven. But can I tell you something that I can show you in the Bible? Is that most of the time when God starts working, it gets messy before it gets better. Right? Mary, you're going to have the Savior of the world. And then there's a scandal. And then there's a donkey. And then there's a stable. Right? Abraham, I'm going to give you a child and make you... Just the father of, of, of my nation. 
But first, you got to explain to your family how a God that they don't believe in, that you've never heard, they've never heard, has instructed you to leave everything you know and leave them behind. And he's not telling you where to go. He's just saying, go that way. Because that won't be messy. Abraham, I'm going to show you that I'm the, the provider of everything. But first, take your 18-year-old son, the promise, take him up on a mountain that I'm going to show you, tie him to an altar, bring wood and fire, and then stab him. That's not going to be messy. Or how about this, David, uh, shepherd boy, I'm going to make you king. And I'm going to anoint you king now. Of course, there is a current king, and he's going to be a little bit jealous and upset that I'm anointing a new king before the old king dies. And so you're going to spend the next few years having spears thrown at your head and hiding in caves with the weird people. Because who else hides in caves? But the weird people. Like, I know they call him David's mighty men, but they started out as David's cousin Eddie's. Right? Or, or how about... How about this? Joseph, I'm going to use you to save your whole family. I'm going to raise you up. And right after that second dream, the brothers tie you up, throw you in a pit, and sell you as a slave to be a prisoner in Egypt. It's interesting, but most of the time, God speaks, he starts working, it gets messy. Here's what I'm saying. If you're looking around and you have messy conditions this Christmas, I've got good news. The messy conditions are probably the proof that you need that God is actually working on your behalf. Because God only shows up in the messy conditions. Here's the, here's the real challenge is don't judge your life by the mess. Judge it by the message. Don't judge your life by the mess. Judge it by the message. In other words, Mary and Joseph, it looks messy. There's a scandal. There's a donkey. There's a stable. Don't judge your life by the mess. Judge it by the message that the messenger brought, that you're birthing the Savior of the world. And sometimes when you're birthing the greatest miracle, you get the greatest and most messy conditions. Man, that's good preaching. Somebody beside you didn't amen, or slap them, say, wake up, Merry Christmas, Jesus loves you. I'm going to tell you a, a messy Christmas story. I've told it before, and I was thinking about it. It's probably, I want to say one of our, we've had a couple of messy Christmases. We have an ornament from the Christmas where we decide, decided to stay together and not get a divorce. And so we have that ornament we get out every year. And we, in faith, Julie got an ornament. She did our greatest Christmas ever. It sucked, but we were prophesied. Sometimes you just got to declare the message in the middle of the mess. That's a great word. You needed that. Tell somebody and say you needed that. You need to declare the message in the middle of the mess, right? And then, and then a few years later, um, about five years ago or so, it was our second Christmas here in, in our story. I've told it before, but, but we, we, we weren't like uber wealthy or something like that, but we, we were very, we were prosperous. We, we were good financially. And, and what I mean is we had money in the bank and we had great income. And, and so for Christmas, we helped a lot of people and we could pretty much, I say buy whatever, but you understand we could buy whatever within reason. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we didn't, it's like, we didn't need a Christmas bonus to have Christmas, that kind of thing. You understand what I'm saying? And, um, and we were kind of used to that and our kids were used to that. And then I was in business with someone I should have never been in business with. And there were a series of events that happened right after we planted. So we planted the church knowing we're not going to have any salary, but not thinking we really needed any salary. Like, I mean, you know, we were fine financially is what I'm saying. And, um, 
And so we started the church, and when you start a church, you don't get a salary just because you start a church. It's kind of like a business. If you, if you give every dollar that comes into the pastor, you'll cripple the church, just like if you take every dollar that comes into a business, you'll cripple the business. You have to build the business and then let the business pay the salaries. You have to build the church, and then God will provide to pay the salaries. And so we were in that stage of just trying to build the church, and so we really weren't taking a salary at all. And, um, and that was okay until we lost everything, and then it got interesting. Like, the fit hit the shan, and it got real. <laughs> like, it did. And um, some of you just needed deliverance. That's why I shared that right there. It's going to ease your pain. It's going to ease your burden. And uh, we were heading into Christmas, and, like, we didn't have money for Christmas. Like, it, there was no budget for Christmas. And our, we met with it. We had a board meeting, an uh, elder meeting, the 1st of December. And I didn't know. I walked in the elder meeting, and I, I set the agenda. But we got to the end, and they said, hey, um, the church has really done well. I mean, it's growing financially. It's, it's doing well, you know, well's relative, but it was growing was the point. And they said, you know, we have, we have some savings here and, and we want to, we want to bless you and Julie for Christmas. And so we've been praying about it, talking about, it. we want to give you guys a, a $2,000 Christmas bonus. Now here's the dumb thing. Cause I'm dumb. And I argued with them. And, and I, I've done this, I don't know how many times, like, guys, we don't need to do this. Now, I don't have a dime for Christmas. We don't need to do this, guys. I want to make sure the church is healthy. And they're like, look, the church is fine. We're going to give you and Julie $2,000. I call Julie. She's crying. Everybody's happy. Ooh, Jesus is moving in alive. The next morning, Julie calls me and says, hey, there's something going on weird with my car. Oh, okay, let me come look at it. Well, the transmission in her SUV went out. And how much do you think it costs to fix it? <laughs> And so it actually cost $1,800 to fix it. So we got $2,000, I tied $200, and then we had $1,800 to fix the car. And then I was, I was praying, but if I'm being honest with you, I was griping and calling it prayer. I, don't look at me all piously like you ain't never done that, because lightning will strike you in this church. Sometimes we gripe, right? When we go tell God what he doesn't know, like, God, I don't know if you know this or not, Right? We're not praying anymore. We're grappling, right? And I said something that was so ridiculous, but I've heard people say it, so I'm going to set you free. But I said to God, God, I don't know if you know what's going on, but like, since we decided to plant this church, all hell has broken loose. It has cost us everything, and we finally get to the worst Christmas of our lives financially, and you speak to the elders to actually give us a bonus and I don't know if you know this, but the transmission on the car went out. Like it couldn't go out, you know, like after we sell it. And this is why I said, God, I don't know if you know this, but we're not even going we're, we're not even going to get to have Christmas this year. And God said, in a very stern but loving way, "Are you telling me you can't celebrate the birth of my son without money and presents?" And I said, of course, that's not what I'm saying. That would be dumb. (laughs) What I was saying is we're not going to be able to help other people have Christmas this year. That's what I was saying, God, because you know me. I'm like, holy, I'm thinking about other people, how I want to take care and give to them. And so, you know, Julie and I talked and and what we came to is, hey, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Julie's usually better at this than me, but... You know, I think sometimes as the guy, you want to be the provider. And when all of a sudden it sucks, you're thinking, I can't provide anything. And Jesus like, it's fine. You know, it's fine. We'll sing. We'll put up the tree. 
we don't have presents, we'll actually get to teach our kids what Christmas is about. Why did God give me such a positive, godly woman? <laughs> Wants to all convict me all the time <laughs> anyways. And so, and so that's what we decided to do. And then, and then, so here is one of the most, it's probably financially the messiest Christmas I've ever been in. And then we go to the mailbox and some people that had no clue what was going on in our lives sent us a card and a check for $600. So why 600? I have no clue to this day. But they just sent us a card and said, hey, we love you guys. We're praying for you. I hope you have a great Christmas. Really just felt like we were supposed to send this to you. And those people thought we had plenty of money. It was so weird. And then, and then Julie's working uh, for CASA at the time, and they're court-appointed special advocates. They help kids in foster care system. And, and she didn't know she was going to get a Christmas bonus, but she ended up getting two Christmas bonuses because someone gave some money, and, and so they got a Christmas bonus, and they got another Christmas bonus. And, and this is what I'm telling you. In our messiest Christmas, God did the mightiest things. See, this year, we weren't worried about buying Christmas presents. We didn't need God to move. We didn't need a card or a miracle to buy Christmas presents. And while that, for me, is less anxious, <laughs> I didn't get to see God move like I did that year. God does the mightiest things in the messiest conditions. And if you're thinking, man, my life's a mess, then I'm thinking the conditions are perfect for a miracle. God moves in ordinary conditions God shows up in messy conditions. And here's the last thing. God moves in timely conditions. Can, can I help you with something that if you could accept this, you're not going to like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it because it's truth and it's good. And if you could learn to like it, you would be more peaceful. God moves on his schedule and you can't change it. Right? That's one of those deep amens. You know what I'm saying? Like God moves on his schedule. God moves on his schedule and you can't change it. I wish we could. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't work on your schedule? Have you ever gotten upset with God because he didn't work on your schedule? Have you ever tried to explain to God what your schedule is and why your schedule is better than his schedule? But God works on his schedule and you can't change it. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, you see that phrase, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the fullness of time had come, in other words, when the appointed time came, God sent his son. Do you know if I were writing the Bible, there would only be one book in it? Do you know why? Because in, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve screw up, eat the, eat the wrong fruit, get kicked out of the garden, it would read like this, you know, and Adam and Eve left the garden, chapter 4. And Jesus Christ was born, Savior of the world. Wouldn't that make sense? Clean up on aisle seven, I've dispatched Jesus. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that make sense? You know what wouldn't make sense to me? Adam and Eve screw up. And I'll give a prophecy in Genesis 3. It's the first messianic prophecy or promise that comes from God that, that the Savior's coming and his heel is going to bruise the head of the enemy. It's the first promise. And I'm going to give you that promise. And then I think, oh, I don't know. A little over 6,000 years later, Jesus will show up. Like, what have you been doing for 6,000 years there, JJ? <laughs> like, this is like, were you delayed? You know, kind of like Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Like, 
the one you love is now dead. Like you could have come when you got the email. Like we put it on Facebook. Jesus, you're not reading Facebook? God just does, doesn't work on our schedule, right? And so Adam and Eve are going to mess up, and then, and then God's going to give us a promise of redemption. And then over the next 6,000 years, there's going to be 300 other references to Jesus and 54 messianic prophecies before finally we read in Luke chapter 2 when the day came for her, for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son. Like God, God moves in his time in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose. Here's what you need to understand. God actually has a time for every purpose in your life. For everything God wants to do in your life, he actually has a time for it. He has an appointment for it. And here's what God wants to do, Kanye. God is not bound by time. He's not inside of time. He's outside of time. And God is outside of time, and God looks and says, what do I need to create down here? See, I don't know if you understand this, but God, um, God's promises are based on his purposes, and their fulfillment is based in his glory. God lives to do his plan and glorify himself. And, and before you think, well, that's narcissistic and how selfish, who would you rather the, universe, the God of the universe glorify? Who's greater that he should glorify? All glory goes to the greatest one. He's the greatest one, and God lives to glorify himself. And so his promises are based in his purpose, and his purpose is about bringing about his glory and the glory of him being seen to the nations. And so God looks and says, when are the conditions going to be right for what I want to do? And then God steps in here and interjects a promise here to get a provision there. And with your life, that's what God does. He's trying to work his purposes. And so every promise that you have, the reason the angel could say every word from God will not fail. No word from God will ever fail. The reason the angel could tell that to Mary is because every word from God is based on his purpose. It's based in his glory and it's based in what he wants to do. He didn't give you a promise so you could feel better. He gave you a promise so he could be glorified in your life. And so God gives you a promise here so he'll be glorified in your life there. He appears to Mary here so that in nine months he can be glorified there. In Genesis 8, it says, as long as the earth exists, there'll be seed time and harvest. Seed time and harvest. But I like to break seed and time apart. There'll be seed, time, and harvest. Seed, time. There's a promise and there's a provision. And in the middle, there's this thing called time. And, and we're the ones, a lot of times, we get a promise on Sunday and we think Monday is the miracle, right? Because we live in a microwave drive through culture, right? God gives us a promise and we say, don't stop there, God. Get me some super size for 37 cents because on Monday, this all, I'm not even going to work Monday, don't have to. God promised me something on Sunday. <laughs> and we forget that between the seed and between the harvest is the time, right? He said, don't be weary in well-doing. Why? Because there's a due season. See, Mary received a word from an angel, but that wasn't due season. That was promise season. But when God makes a promise, he knows there's a due season. The difference is there's this time in the middle. And we got to learn to be able to walk out the time 
between our promise and our provision, between the word and the answer, between what God says and what God does. We can't, God moves in timely conditions. And so right now, if you're, if you're stuck in time, how many, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I think there's a lot of people, are you just stuck in time? Like it's messy, it's ordinary, I'm just stuck in time. Let me give you four ways to wait. If you're stuck in time, you have four, four ways to wait, and then we'll call it good. The first thing is wait patiently. Wait patiently. Da- David said this. David said this in 30, Psalm 37, 7. It says, rest in the Lord. <laughs> rest in the Lord. I was talking to uh, a gentleman last night after the service, and he said, I just don't know how to enter into what God has for me. And I said, rest is always the way you enter in the promise. Striving says that you have to do something to enter in the promise. Rest says that God's providing. The only way to enter into what God's called you in is an attitude and a heart of rest. And so here's what David says. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Rest in the Lord, wait, wait, wait patiently. Leave that up there just a second. Rest in the Lord, wait patiently. Wait patiently for him. Do you realize David is writing this hiding in a cave because he's the king, but the king is trying to kill him? And David says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently. And he says, don't fret because of him who prospers in his way and because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Here's what he's saying. Don't compare your schedule to someone else's. Don't compare what God's doing here with what you saw God do there. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not. Don't lean on. Do you understand what that's saying? It's saying like if this, let's say this podium is my understanding. It's saying don't do this. I'm waiting. In other words, don't let your understanding be your support system. Don't let your understanding be the thing that tries to prop you up. Now, on this side is my understanding. On this side is obviously what I don't understand. And if God is saying that I cannot lean on my own understanding, God is indeed asking me to lean on what I don't understand. That's very comfortable. Sarcasm included. How many love to lean on what you can't understand? But yet God says, this is the way you live. I, I heard a, I read an article one time. It intrigued me, and I read it. And the, the guy in there, um, who obviously didn't know what he was talking about, but everything's true that's online. Um, <laughs> I demanded a recount after I read his article, but <laughs> but he said in there, he said, "Faith is based on what you understand." I was like, "No, it's not. If I understand it, it's what I understand." I don't need faith to believe in what I understand. Faith is only necessary when I don't understand. Faith is based on the absolute of God in the lack of my understanding. There's faith. Faith is when I absolutely believe what God said when I don't understand. And as a Christian, if I ever get up caught thinking I can only believe what I understand... I will never live a life of faith because the Christian life depends on mystery and revelation. Mystery and revelation because faith is not possible without 
mystery. Revelation is what God has revealed. Mystery is what I don't understand. And God moves us forward by giving us revelation and then increasing mystery. And then we increase revelation. And he tries to keep those things stair-step staggered and balanced to keep us moving forward in life. If I understood everything, if God just revealed everything, there'd be no tension. I'd just have understanding. But if I'm going to wait patiently for him, patience means I accept his timeline, I accept his schedule, and I accept that I probably don't understand. And I'm okay with understanding what he's given me to understand and believing in spite of what I don't understand. That's waiting patiently. So four things, wait patiently. Second thing, wait faithfully. Wait faithfully. Hebrews 11, verse 1 talks about faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is a substance. It's an evidence because faith has to be based in an absolute, but it's not an absolute of understanding. It's an absolute of God's promise. It's an absolute of God. But when you're taking that verse, I just want to take the first words, now faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, now faith. Because here's what you need to understand. If I'm going to wait faithfully, it means that in every moment... I wait in faith, that faith is now, that faith isn't just the moment I heard, that faith is today. Today, I believe in the absolute assurance of what God has already spoken. In this moment, I have faith. In this moment, I believe. In this moment, I'm still with God. In this moment, I'm working with him. In this moment, I'm hanging on to the promise. It just doesn't mean, because sometimes we get the promise like, woo, I have faith, and then Monday comes. And then the next Monday, and then the next Monday. And it seems that the farther we go from the promise, the less faith we actually have. If I'm going to wait faithfully, it means I maintain a constant level of faith in God, no matter how much time it takes him to move. I did hear somebody say one time, it was a good thing. He said, God is the slowest man I've ever met to always be on time. And sometimes it feels that way. But faith says in every now moment, I have faith for what God said. Faith is now. I always have faith now. I didn't just have faith then. I have faith now. Faith comes by hearing, not by having heard. Every moment I'm refreshing the promise and standing in the faith in that moment of right now. I'm waiting faithfully. So I'm waiting patiently, faithfully. And the last or the third thing, hopefully. I'm waiting hopefully. There's a difference between hope and faith. Faith is now, hope is then. <clears throat> faith is now, hope is future. But both of them are based in the absolute of God. See, a lot of times when we talk about hope, it's kind of like wishful thinking. Well, like I hope I win the lottery or something like that. That's not hope, that's wishing. Hope is based in an absolute. In fact, hope is only possible when there's faith. Today, if you don't have hope, it's because you don't have faith. Because hope is that joy-filled expectation that God's going to do it. Well, how can I have that hopeful or that joyful expectation of good? Well, I have to have faith now. When I have faith now, I have hope for tomorrow. And so I'm waiting patiently, faithfully, hopefully. And then here's the last thing. I'm waiting actively. I'm waiting actively. See, sometimes we think God has a different Hebrew name that's not in the Bible. Like there's Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh, and then Jehovah Kesara <laughs> Right? Don't we kind of think of that? Because God said it in Kesara maybe someday he'll do it. 
Jehovah Kesarasara. Whatever will be. Yeah, see, you want to sing it too. But God is not a Kesarasara. God is a God of absolutes. No word from God ever fails. And God speaks and it becomes an absolute. But here's what I don't want to do. Say, I get a promise from God and then I just, well, whatever, and move on with my life. No, 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 no. That's not waiting actively. Waiting actively means I am holding on. I'm living in faith. I'm living in hope. And I'm, and I'm determining what is next for me. Like I'm moving forward with God. I'm taking my next step. I'm serving. I'm giving. I'm growing. I'm leading. I'm doing what God asked me to do in this season while I'm waiting. You see what I'm saying? It's not that I, I got a promise and I just sit in my easy chair and think, well, God, if you ever move, then I'll move. No, it's about saying, God, I have this promise. But in the meantime, like I'm between the seed and the harvest, I'm in the time. But there's things that God does in the time that sometimes are more valuable than the promise he fulfills. Sometimes God does some of his greatest work in the timely conditions, not just in the fulfillment or the promise. And so waiting actively says, God, I'm with you in this moment. What do I do now until I see what you're going to do next? Like faith is now. So now in this moment today, what do I do? How do I get closer to you? How do I move forward with you? How, how do I deepen my relationship with you? God, what are you wanting me to do in the time between the seed and the harvest. In these timely conditions, what do you want me to do? Here's what I'm saying. God moves in all types of conditions. He moves, he moves in the ordinary. And if you got it this morning feeling ordinary, that's the only kind of people that God uses. It's the only kind of people that he shows up to. If you got it this morning, it was messy. Then you need to understand God doesn't come to perfect conditions because there aren't any. But God will per birth perfect miracles in the messiest of conditions. And then you need to understand God works in his timing. He works in timely conditions. And today, if you're between the promise and the harvest and you're in the time, it's okay. Wait patiently. Wait faithfully. Wait hopefully. But wait actively. Because no word from God will ever fail. Can you give God a praise? Like your best praise? Like he's the savior of the world kind of praise?